So we come this evening to Job chapter 3, reading the entirety of that chapter, God's holy and inspired word, Job chapter 3, God's word. After this, Job opened his mouth, and he cursed his day, and Job said, Let the day perish in which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it, let clouds dwell upon it, let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it, let it not rejoice among the days of the year, let it not come into the number of months. Behold, let that night be barren, and let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark, let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes, Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuild ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, who dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light hidden, or why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God is hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. It's for the reading of God's word. May he bless it. So self-control is a virtue, even a fruit of the Spirit. It's especially an attribute of wisdom, for as we read in Proverbs, A wise man keeps calm his emotion. And yet, can self-control go wrong? Have you ever felt that self-control is dishonest? You're feeling miserable and someone asks you, how are you doing? And you say, I'm fine. Okay, it wasn't the time and the place. You're just being polite or being private. But if your doctor asked you, wouldn't it be a or a harmful dishonesty? And then there's grieving. For parts of our Christian tradition tell us that pious mourning is holding your pain in, 
keeping a stiff upper lip, and just being happy about the good things. Don't weep, just be grateful. And from such ideas, we get celebrations of life instead of funerals, which feel more like weddings. But how is this not a violation of the Ninth Commandment? Does biblical self-control really forbid us from expressing our sad emotions? Well, we meet Job at a funeral, and even though it's not pretty, he at least honors the moment and respects us enough to be honest and open. So seven days of silence. There's been complete quiet for a week on the ash heap for Job and his three friends. And yet the time of silence has reached its expiration date as Job opens his mouth. He utters audible words to break the quiet as if glass. No, there are several filters for our listening that provides aid to our hearing. First of all, the, all, the first of all, the friends held their peace because they saw Job's suffering was very great. He opens his mouth and he speaks from his terrific agony. His outstanding pain is talking. And as you know, when you're throbbing, your thinking and speaking are affected. Second, in keeping with the ancient mourning etiquette, the friends did not say a word initially. Now, this fell in line with the wisdom that the comforter should let the sufferer break the silence. Talking is good and necessary, but to honor the victim, the prime sufferer, they get to talk first. The pain is first theirs, and so it is only fitting that they get to address it at the front of the line. Third, we should remember all the knife stabs that make up Job's torment. And it's quite a list. Lost wealth, dead servants, bereaved of ten kids, Society banished him, he's living in a landfill, and the constant torment of his boils and other medical issues. But there is another spear thrust that goes deeper. Remember that Satan disguised all this misfortune behind the retribution principle. He made all his misery look and feel like a curse from God. Therefore, the deepest wound for Job is a spiritual one. As was clear from chapter 1, the Lord and Job were close covenant partners. They had an intimate bond. Appearing cursed, though, translates into feelings of abandonment, being forsaken and betrayed by the God that Job loved. As far as he can tell, Job senses that the Lord switched to being his enemy. He, his Lord and divine friend, attacked him with untold woe and for seemingly no good reason. This is the most bitter ache gnawing at Job's soul. Job's physical pains are just the icing on the cake of his spiritual trauma. Therefore, he parts his teeth and he curses. His first syllables are curses. How troubling, 
is Job handing Satan the win here? In the first two chapters, there was a conference in heaven that led to Job being tested. Well, here with the three friends, we have another conference, and we expect Job's third test. And now he curses? Has Job just failed? But alas, no, for he curses not God, but his day. Literally, verse 1 says he cursed his day, which is ambiguous, and intentionally so. In fact, this is an This is actually a common feature in the poetry of this book. That is, a line will be purposely ambiguous, and you have to read further in order to clarify it. As we progress in our reading, we readjust the meaning of what was said before. Thus, his day can refer to Job's birthday, or to the day he was actually born, or his present situation, or even his whole life. But we cannot choose which is the meaning from verse 1. So before asking questions, we let Job talk. We give him the opportunity to clarify before we raise our hand to ask dumb questions. And what pain Job gives air to. Perish the day. Let the day I was born go away. Even the night of my conception, let it die. Job wishes that his birthday might expire, that he was never born, never existed in the first place. Though he treats the day of his birth and the night of conception differently, he mentions first the day in the first half of verse 3, and then he focuses on the day in verses 4 and 5. And note what he says in verse 4. So that day, let it be darkness. May God not seek it or care for it or regard it. Light should never shine upon my day. Rather, gloom and deep darkness should reclaim it. And the black bitterness of the day scare it to death. You can feel his pain, a sorrow so hot that it would be better had he never been born. The agony that stings his heart cancels out all the good of life. Nothing in life is worth enduring such misery. This is the all-consuming grip of pain, the anguish that seizes your entire consciousness and lets nothing else in. Its screaming fills your head and you just want it to stop. Everything needs to stop, to go away, even your whole life. Though Job's misery is speaking on a deeper level here, know what he says to the day of his birth. He says, let it be darkness. But this is a parody of God's first utterance of creation on day one, let there be light. Job reverses the creative fiat into one of decreation. Let there be darkness. So also the words for gloom and deep darkness or death darkness refers to that primordial blackness of chaos. It's the black hole hovering over the deep in Genesis 1. 
Job doesn't just want his day to become dark, but he wishes that day itself would return to the dark abyss. Literally, the death darkness will redeem the day that is buy it back, reclaim it, swallow it back up. Remember, God created light from darkness. So this, so this is that darkness sucking light and day back into itself. Job's pain is wishing for decreation. If agony and torment can be as searing as his, then God should have never created in the first place. What a profound riddle. Does pain cancel out all the good in life? If sadness is so piercing, should life have not existed? Well, the heartbreak of Job screams, yes, let there be darkness. And if this is starting to feel like too much, Job gets more intense. Forget about birth. If you want to travel back to your true origin, you have to go back to conception. So, in the second part of verse 3, Job calls for the destruction of the night that said, a man is conceived. Then he picks up this night, or picks it back up in verses 6 through 9. He again uses the imagery of primordial gloom and darkness. He says, let death darkness seize the night. May the night not be counted upon the calendar. Like February 29th, may it disappear from the number of months. He calls for that night also to be barren and abstinent, verse 7. Joy here is the joy of lovemaking. May my night of conception be infertile, be one of no sex. May daddy's little swimmer never reach mommy's little bubble. But his personal night of conception spills over into the cosmic, even the magical. He says, let the day cursors put a hex on the night. Those who rouse Leviathan, may they ban the night. Now these magicians who curse the day and raise Leviathan are likely astral deities. In the pagan myths, these demons fought against the orderliness of day and night. And with spells, they attempted to harness the power of the chaotic monster of Leviathan. And so Job wishes that these wizards of disorder would conquer the night of his conception and night itself. May night lose all its stars. May it hope for light but nothing. May night never again see the eyelids of morning. Now, using such pagan magical imagery should not bother us. It does not mean Job actually believed in it. Rather, it is like us saying, May Voldemort avada cravat it, or more, may Sauron devour it in shadow. Job is wishing for the non-existence of his night and night itself. And the emotion of such fanciful wishes are at home in the words of myth. Indeed, the imagery of myth often speak truer than normal language when it comes to the mysterious movements of pain 
and sadness. Nevertheless, the anguish wishes for decreation, for the, for the erasure of his own existence, these are, after all, just wishes. His pain is dreaming of far-off counterfactuals, what is not actually the case. And so he brings it closer to home. He desires that Leviathan would consume his day and night in blackness because God did not shut the doors of his mother's womb. The subject in verse 10 is God. He complains that the Lord did not close the womb to him so that he might never experience his trouble. Indeed, Job walks us through the entire birth experience, and he hopes for death at every or any stage of it, verses 11 and 12. First is literally to die from the womb, which refers to a miscarriage. Next, to come out and die is to be stillborn. Knees receiving his parental exception, and so this is the midwife killing the newborn baby, and to be denied nursing is to be exposed. Thus, Job wishes that he was aborted. It doesn't matter when, in the womb, partial birth, full-born, or exposure. Why didn't God or his parents abort him somewhere along the way? If only I had been aborted. And why? Because then he would be at rest. As an aborted fetus, he could lay down to sleep and enjoy quiet rest. He would have joined the kings and viziers of the earth who built glorious tombs for themselves. He would be sharing a siesta with the princess who filled their graves with silver and gold. Instead of the abject shame of his life, by abortion, he would be relaxing with the honorable in the netherworld. And yet Job doesn't need a a respectable mausoleum. He would be fine, just be hidden like a stillborn, wrapped up and buried in the sand as a lifeless infant is plenty for him. Just as long as he was not, so that he did not have to see the light. Indeed, the contours of the grave sound like paradise to Job. Below the earth is where the wicked cease their troublemaking. The weary get to rest. The cruel shouting of bosses ceases, and the ease of prisoners is blessed. Small and great, they all share the same peacefulness. Even the slave is free from the master in the underworld. Job paints death not just as the great leveler, but also As the final liberator, the anguish and toil of life is a jail. The stress and distress of life are a bondage to a harsh master. But in death, all are liberated from such constant agitation to the calm and repose of the grave. After the insomnia of life comes the sweet sleep of death. With envy, Job carves on his tombstone, tombstone, R.I.P., rest in peace. 
Indeed, the superiority of death's rest over life's misery makes Job question why God even gives life to the miserable. Why does the Lord grant life to those whose soul is racked with bitterness? What's the point? Why life if death is better? And to prove his point, Job brings up those who long for death. Yes, there is a group of humans who cannot wait to die. Now, these are not necessarily the suicidal, as active suicide does not even seem to be considered here. Rather, these are the people whose life is filled with bitterness and vinegar. For such people, hospice care was invented. They just want to die. They dig for death like buried treasure. They bury into the soil to find Sheol as if it was pirate treasure. And when their shovel hits the gates of Hades, they rejoice. Their funeral is not a celebration of life, but of death for them. Yeah, joy is fitting sometimes at gravesite services, not because they lived in misery, but because they are finally now dead and sleeping with the sleepers. But Job contrasts those who find death with himself, verse 23. Literally, for a man whose way is hidden, God has hedged him in. This is a self-referent. He is the man whose way to death is top secret. The Lord has hedged Job off from reaching the peace of death. That is all Job wants is death, but God will not allow it. There's even a link here with chapter 1. There, Satan said that God's blessings hedged Job off from all trouble. Well, now Job complains that God has hedged him off from the sweet grave. The Lord's fierce imprison, the Lord's fence imprisons him in the torture dungeon called life. Indeed, what has life become for Job? He tells us in the closing verses. Sighing and moaning keep him alive before food. The roarings and groanings of agony are poured out like water. He roars like the turbulent oceans, and his moans come from him like a man without bladder control. For the thing he feared the most, the most dreaded nightmare, has come upon him. He won the unlucky lottery. He lost everything and was forsaken by the Lord. It doesn't get any worse than this, and then there is no relief for Job. He says, I am not at ease. I have no quiet, absolutely no rest. There is only agitation and trouble for Job. As Proverbs tells us, God created wine for sufferers. But Job's cup is empty. He cannot drown his pains in a bottle. He has no Advil for his back no excedrin for his head. Job does not have a button to push for more morphine. No nurse turns him from his growing bed sores. 
Dirt is his only blanket and stones his pillow. Constant, unceasing, persistent is his agitating anguish and his torturous trouble. His every conscious moment is a head-splitting metal, scraping on metal, and he cannot turn it off. Why won't God just let me die? And such is the grief and the stinging sadness of Job. And aren't you glad that we let Job speak first? Had we gotten the first remark, we would have spoken wrongly. We would have addressed our own ideas and our own guesses projected upon him. We would not have talked to Job as he truly is, but we would have talked to him as we would want him to be. Thus, the greatest virtue of this lament of Job, this cursing his day, is its honesty. He respected the reality of providence to tell it like it truly is. He does not lie about his pain. Job does not shield us from his agony with politeness or privacy, but he spews out his suffering like vomit. You may have never felt grief like Job. And Lord willing, you have not. But some of you have. But Job stands as a witness and herald that life can be this miserable and wretched. You see, in our bourgeoisie ethic, we like to pretend that life cannot get this bad. With a Disney optimism, Every cloud has a silver lining, and flowers are always blooming somewhere. Sure, life has its bumps and bruises, but there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Or like the Stoics, we demonize feelings of pain and sadness, and we cast them from us as if they're not actually part of us. Pain is just for the body, no big deal. Don't get in a tizzy over. And yet as we minimize, as we suppress or color over life's agonies, we violate the ninth commandment concerning evil. Yes, God created this world good and beautiful. But this good cosmos fell into sin, cursed, turned things upside down. Life is bent and broken. Satan prowls like a lion. Pain, cancer, blindness, abuse hurts us, and they hurt like hell. Uncertainty, depression, being forsaken can torture us to the core like a fire in our bones or like a mole chewing on your soul. Such pain is real. Such evil exists. These agonies hound humanity by grace. The Lord spares most of us from such severity. But even if we do not experience it, by grace may we not, we must know it exists. We cannot deny that it is out there, for this is the same torment as what Christ suffered. Yes, in the dark anguish of Christ's cross, we hear the agitation of Job. Constant pain with no ease, 
continual torment with no peace, pain outside and anguish within, stabbed our Savior. The Father hedged in in Christ so that he could not die until the time was right. Sure, Jesus hung on the cross between noon and three, but in those earthly hours, he experienced the torments of eternity. Darkness encompassed him. Leviathan sank its teeth into the flesh of our Savior. His day was swallowed up, and his night did not see the dawn. When we sugarcoat the evils of this life, we minimize the sufferings of Christ. We water down the torment he felt for us. Our pretending not to be sad disrespects the tears of Jesus. And yet, our Lord was not just like Job. One thing is evident from this awesome agony and this terrifying poetry of Job is that he has tunnel vision. All he can see is his pain, and everything else dies to his experience. He wishes for non-existence, for decreation, for barrenness, for abortion. But our Lord did not succumb to the burden of tunnel vision. Jesus did not wish that creation never happened. Rather, he died to redeem it. Jesus perished to make a new creation. He climbed into the tomb to burst out in the resurrection as the firstborn of the dead. Jesus didn't curse his day, but he bore the curse of the day in order to conquer it. Christ took all the evil of sin in this age, and he bore it away in his own body. In the pitch darkness of Jesus' suffering, He never lost sight of the light. He endured the nails and the forsakenness for the joy set before him. In this chapter, Job lost all sight of this, just as we do at times. Pain can overwhelm us. The sadness of the day darkens every light. The heartbreaking melancholy drowns out peace. With Job, we too can feel and experience all agitation and no rest. And sure, in the throes of anguish, we can get tunnel vision. In our grief, we can sin and curse things that should not be cursed. In sadness, we feel the weakness of our human frame as we become slaves to our own bodies, pains, and worries. And yet in your grieving, the Lord has given you the freedom to be honest. His mercy lets you tell it how it is for you. And this honesty is a grace to you, as being forthright about the evil of this life gives us a light into the next. In Job's death wish, He may not have given expression to the resurrection, but his sentiment was in the same spirit of the resurrection. For in his lust for death, Job despairs of this age, this fallen world, and he looked outside of it. The problem with thinking that this world is pretty good 
and it just needs a touch-up, a facelift to be paradise. If you think this, then why do you need heaven? If the day is all sunshine, why bother with the light of heaven? Optimism about this life can be a failure to be heavenly-minded. And thus Jesus calls us to grieve and to be honest about our pain in order to turn our hearts and our eyes to him on high. Our beloved teaches us to look for rest finally in death with him. As Paul says, for to be away from the body is to be with our beloved shepherd in glory. Only as we die in Christ do we gain the robe of Sabbath rest. To live in this life is to suffer as and with our Savior, but to die is gain. The final cessation of pain and the beginning of everlasting pleasure with God. Thus, may we be honest in our sadness. May we listen first to the pain of others. And may we keep our hearts on heaven where Christ, who is our joy in this life and the next, sits. And may we know that Christ has prepared a rest for us. For indeed, as we look to Christ, he also enables us to get out of our tunnel vision of pain and to also note all the good gifts of Christ here and now, so that we learn how to be grateful and thankful even as we are sad and grieve in this life. Thus help us to be honest in our pain, to be grateful to Christ, and to be heavenly-minded always. Amen. Let us pray.